This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B. Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We've got a lot to break down today, and we're going to jump right into it. Before we do that, though, I got to make sure that you're all caught up on previous conversations. So make sure you're going to our website, opportune.com. Again, that's opportune.com for previous episodes of the show, as well as more information about our solutions and services and other content like white papers, blogs, videos, and more. You can also subscribe to E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So just hit that subscribe button and you'll get a full catalog of previous conversations as well as notifications when we drop new episodes. So for today's conversation, we're going to be analyzing an important but maybe under-referenced report for the industry. That would be the Haynes and Boone Borrowing Base Survey. So for those not familiar with Haynes and Boone, they are an international law firm that conducts this borrowing base survey twice a year. And it's with the goal of providing a, quote, forward-looking and clear idea of what lenders, borrowers, oil and gas producers, and others are experiencing regarding borrowing base redeterminations in light of the price uncertainty in the commodity markets, end quote. So that's a lot there, right? What does this actually mean for our audience? And how are current oil prices impacting the ecosystem of banking and finance capital around the oil and gas industry? Well, here to weigh in is Steve Hendrickson. He's president of Ralph E. Davis, an opportune company. Steve, welcome. Great to have you on. How you doing? Thanks. Well, fantastic. Again, Steve, it's uh, great to have you rejoining us. Uh, You've been on the podcast a few times, so hopefully our audience is familiar with the kind of perspectives and insights that they're uh, getting ready to hear from you. But just for a little uh, brief refresher, can you break down your role with an opportune and how some of your work connects with today's topic? Yeah, sure. And I'll give you a little bit of background as well. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm uh, the president of Ralph E. Davis, which is a petroleum engineering firm. Uh, We focus primarily on uh, reservoir engineering, reserve studies, uh, things like that uh, that relate a lot to the value of um, oil and gas assets. We do do a a bit of uh, other technical work as well. Um, By way of background, I've been in the oil and gas business for uh, really over 40 years. Fantastic. Steve, thanks again. And I'm excited to pull from your wealth of experience in the industry uh, and your various insights. They'll definitely be valuable here. So again, this topic, right, breaking down the Haynes and Boone survey uh, is going to be treated like a barometer to gauge banks' lendability, so to speak, uh, specifically to the oil and gas industry. And so Steve and I are going to be, you know, for our audience here, we're going to be looking back at the survey's findings uh, in their latest report. So let's go ahead and shoot it over to you, Steve. When we talk about 
borrowing bases in general. Let's get that out of the way and define it for our audience, right? What is a borrowing base to the layman, and how does it pertain specifically to the oil and gas industry? Sure. Well, borrowing base is a term that is related to uh, what's called reserve-based lending. Um, you step back and think about borrowing money uh, of any kind for, for any reason. You know, we kind of have two broad categories of debt, if you will. There's secured and there's unsecured. And, you know, the common way, you know, the, uh, people can think about that is unsecured is basically there, there's no collateral, if you will. It's just your promise to pay. And a good example of that is like a credit card, you know, credit card debt. There's no there's no security that if you don't pay, they come and take it, take it back like they might your car if you didn't make your payments on your car loan. Uh, a good example of secured debt is a mortgage, right? Um, you borrow a bunch of money to buy a house. And if you don't pay the money back, well, then they take the house and sell it in order to pay themselves the loan back. So reserve-based lending is a secured form of debt. And in that particular uh, setup, the security, the underlying uh, collateral, if you will, is a mortgage on the producing assets of the company, um, the oil and gas assets. And so the borrowing base is a calculation that's typically made semi-annually. It's made at the beginning of the loan and then every six months after the loan has um, has been originated to check what the value of those remaining assets are. You say, well, why do we need to do that, right? We don't really do that with our house when we borrow against it. Well, oil and gas assets are depleting. So as time goes on, you're taking money out of them. And so inherently they would be worth less in the future than they were today just because of uh, production. But of course, prices can change and that can change the underlying value. And um, you may spend some of that money you've borrowed. I mean, this is what mo why most people borrow it, is they're going to do some drilling with that and hopefully grow the asset, grow the production, and grow the reserves. So it's possible that uh, even price changes aside, that through successful development, that the value of the assets actually goes up over time. And this gives borrowers the chance to um, have more credit availability to continue to grow their business. Um, you can kind of think of it as a little bit like a line of credit as well. Uh, and it's just, what is that credit? Um, what What is the magnitude of that line of credit um, from one point in time to the next? So why, why these things are important is because when there are especially big negative price changes, uh, typically borrowing bases go way down. And if the amount of money that is outstanding, that is, you've borrowed a certain amount of money and you owe that back to the bank, and uh, the borrowing base is less than that, well, then you are obligated to repay the difference pretty quickly. Um, and if you don't, you're in breach of your loan covenants, and that can start a whole series of bad events. So uh, borrowers who use reserve-based lending are always very concerned about what their borrowing base does uh, from redetermination to redetermination. Perfect. Thanks for that clarification, Steve. Again, uh, some background on 
what a borrowing base is, uh, reserve-based lending. You know, these are essential concepts for oil and gas development. Uh, When it comes to redetermination, just kind of as a whole concept, let's give a brief definition there too. What does redetermination mean? And how does this uh, dynamic of going to a bank multiple times to get a line of credit impact the oil and gas industry? Right. So once these these lines of credit or revolving credit agreements uh, are established, they usually have a term of about, it can vary, but usually it's about five to seven years and then they'll have to be renegotiated, right? Uh, provided that everything has gone, you know, fine up to that point, nothing has happened prior to that in a bad sense. And so um, the borrowing based redeterminations happen, as I mentioned, typically twice a year. And what, uh, what happens is the borrower, the operating company um, will commission a third party reserve report uh, that, um, that will be delivered to the banks and serve as the basis for their, what I'll call their underwriting calculations, where they determine what that borrowing base is worth to them. And they have their own price decks that they use and a number of other parameters that they consider that when they see the reserves as described in this third-party reserve report, they uh, are able to use that information and derive the amount of uh, borrowing base they think is appropriate for that and, and their risk tolerance. And very often these, um, these loans are actually syndicated. So there might be, I'll just make up some numbers, there could be a, a $500 million credit facility at origination and but not one bank would be willing to loan typically there there aren't many banks that are willing to do a loan of that size and so it'll get uh, syndicated amongst a number of banks each of which have a um, a small percentage of it you know maybe 10 15 percent uh maybe the agent bank has a pretty large piece um, but then they have um they'll have to submit each of them what they think the borrowing base should be. And then the agent bank will come up with an answer that is satisfactory to all or almost all of the lenders in the group. And that gets communicated back then to the the borrowing company. Perfect. Thank you, Steve, again, for that background on uh, borrowing bases, redetermination, and just that whole important interface between the bank and the oil and gas producer and, um, you know, breaking down what they're supposed to do, which is develop hydrocarbons. So, yeah. And of course, you know, um, a lot of the work that we do is in support of that activity, right? We sometimes will do reserve reports for borrowers and sometimes we'll assist lenders in their uh, assessment of those reserve reports that others have done to help them with their underwriting. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, let's go ahead and jump into the report from Haynes and Boone then to get a little bit more specific and actionable. So my first question to you here, Steve, is um, in the Haynes and Boone's uh, most recent survey, it came out in April, it's currently June, uh, most of the responses indicated that... um, they expect to see substantial borrowing base increases this spring. So again, respondents are indicating in the survey that they expect to see substantial borrowing base increases this spring. What are some of the overarching factors that uh, are supporting this conclusion in your opinion and in your analysis and why? Yeah. Well, I think uh, the question relates to the question two uh, in their survey. I think they have five questions in their survey which deals with um, what they think the borrowing basis will do. And as you mentioned, most of them think they're going to go up by 
20% is kind of the most common number, both in terms of borrowers and lenders. And But there's a substantial, if you look at the 30 and 40% increases, you'd say that at least at least half think it'll be 20% or greater. So as I mentioned a little bit about the mechanics of how these things are determined, there's really two main drivers. How much future production are you going to have? And what what will be the commodity prices that those are, are expected to get? There's a kind of a third component that goes along with the prices, and that is the hedge position that they've had. Because the, the banks do give credit to the hedges that banks, that the operators have taken um, or have, have entered into. So we talked about pricing, oil and gas future prices playing a big role in what barring base redeterminations will be. The banks don't use the strip price deck that a lot of folks are familiar with, the NYMEX price curve, for instance. They, they each develop their own internal underwriting price decks. And those are always, I'll say always, because that's been my experience, um, at a discount to the NYMEX curve. They're not all the same. But they develop those independently. And so when prices in the market go up, like we're experiencing right now, um, their price curves move up too. They don't necessarily move up as much, but they do go up. So um, price changes are generally the most significant uh, driver to period-to-period changes in borrowing basis. As I mentioned, also um, could another factor is production, right? So... If you had gone from one period to the next and had been drilling and adding new production, even though you were producing uh, volumes from the existing wells, now you've added additional wells, which are replacing some of that production. So it's possible that you really don't have a production change. And so that may not be a factor. But if let's say you're an operator that for whatever reason has chosen to reduce the amount of drilling you're doing, or maybe you're not doing any drilling, you could find yourself in a situation where you're remaining reserves are less than they were when you had the last redetermination. And so that could be a driver. I think what we're seeing here in this particular survey question, though, really relates to price changes. Yeah, I mean, it certainly looks that way, right? Uh, And that kind of dovetails me into my next question, which is also based on some of the responses in the survey. So respondents are reporting lower hedging percentages in this spring survey compared to the last survey conducted, like you um, mentioned just a bit earlier. Why do you think that is, right? Break down that dynamic and the factors at play. Right, and so this question kind of, you know, they they ask about the... um, about the next 12 months in particular. And most most operators are going to have a hedge book that extends longer than that, th- those that choose to hedge. And I'd say some, some meaningful percentage of hedging of their future volumes up to maybe three years out. Some go further, some will be less, but you know, it's uh, one year is a pretty short time frame for, for hedge, a hedge book tenor. Um, so I think this is a, a good question to point out that the, you know, the responses, um, we have different types of respondents in this survey. Some are lenders, some are borrowers, some are other people. And so when we think about the question regarding, well, what does your hedging look like uh, compared to a prior period? Now, question three doesn't show what the prior period answers were. So we have to take Haynes and Boone at their word here that these are lower volumes. But I would be focused mostly on the borrower responses, not so much on the lenders. The lenders know something about their borrowers, but the borrowers know a lot about their own operation. Um, You know, we had 105 respondents here. 
30 some percent of them, uh, about a third were in uh, operating companies. So just kind of keep that in mind, the sample size. Um, so we're seeing that, you know, we have less hedging um, than they observed last time. Um, and it talks about as a percentage of future production. All right. So it's important to keep in mind that there are two sources of future production. There are the, the wells that exist today and there's the wells that I intend to drill in the future. And this question doesn't really ask about what percentage of what volume. It says the total. So it could be very light. It could be possible that from a PDP producing standpoint, hedgers aren't hedging anything different than what they did in the past. They're just now expecting to have more undeveloped volumes come online because prices are higher and they plan to drill more. So it's a little hard to say what what's really going on with in producers' minds on this. What this this question is just a little bit too vague to really draw a lot of conclusions from. Now we have had some conversations with others in the industry and. I do believe that um, there was a lot of pressure a couple years ago by banks in particular, uh, perhaps some other capital providers to put a lot of hedges on because folks had kind of gotten burned in a downward market. So there was a lot of hedging. And then prices took off and folks start to feel like, well, that may not be such a great idea. Now that I'm paying out on all these hedges, maybe I don't want to do so much of that. And so I think that's a realistic uh, um reason that some others, some might not be hedging as much. But another factor we've noted is that the forward curve, the prices that are expected and that you could hedge into in the future if you're using swaps, um, is quite a bit lower than where the spot prices are. And as a result, so for instance, you might be sitting at 100 or $110 today and say, well, what, what kind of price can I hedge at two years out? And see, that price is $70 to $80. And you'd say, well, I'm, I don't think I really want to do that. Why do I want to lock in $70, $80 when it's $100 plus today? And I think that tends to um, uh, restrict uh, or at least reduce the amount of uh, hedging that some companies choose to do. That's great, Steve. Thank you again for um, the breakdown there. Again, hedging is uh, you know, a quite complex aspect to forecasting what a, um, a driller might produce in the future. And you know, it's, it's kind of an insurance to lock in a certain price in the future on what you're going to sell your commodity at. And then if it doesn't hit that certain price benchmark, uh, there's quite a bit of risk there, right? That a, a bank and then a driller have to take on. Would you agree, right? Is this, um, you know, that important of an aspect for forecasting production uh, in the future, a ways out, right? What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. this business, you know, has a lot of commodity price risk, right? Because you make an investment decision today, you'll spend millions of dollars and the return on that investment comes over a long time in the future, several years typically. And that return, the money you get back, is strongly influenced by the price. You know, basically revenue is volume times price. So either, you know, you've got volume risk and you have price risk. And there, you know, there's not much you can do in the financial markets with respect to volume risk. But price risk has a number of techniques, which we kind of throw under the term hedging, um, to uh, try to mitigate at least a portion, maybe a significant portion of that risk. Um, so, it, and it is complex because it uh, it 
um, there are a number of different tools that can be used and it takes some pretty detailed modeling to be able to understand what the effects of the hedging decisions are um, when prices start to change. Yeah, that's right, right. And we're, we're seeing that today, right? Drillers today, uh, and when I say drillers, uh, I mean EMP companies, right? Exploration and production companies, they're enjoying pretty good cash flow right now. So that leads to the next question on the survey, and that's, uh, you know, while cash flow is obviously strong for operators and it's, uh, you know, king of capital sources right now, the survey in Haynes and Boone um, – noted several notable changes regarding how producers are funding themselves. It's actually becoming a more differentiated and varied pool. So for example, the use of equity capital, both public and private, uh, as well as bank debt, uh, the use of all of these are increasing. Does this square with what you're seeing in the industry, right? Are you seeing the same thing amongst your clients? And if so, what alternative means of funding uh, you know, could be occurring here and could be laying some fresh foundations for the industry? Well, I think uh, it's a, let's start with maybe a little bit of a backdrop on on uh, kind of coming out of the 2018, 2019, or even into the pandemic, right? Uh, the downturn that the industry went through. And um, the downturn was kind of accompanied by a change in the uh, maturity, I'll say, of the of the unconventional plays in the United States, right? So if you go back a decade or more, those plays were all emerging, evolving. There was a land grab in every one of them as people tried to get leases together, drill, uh, figure out if they were in a good spot, figure out how to make it work, to add value and, you know, sell the company or you know, primarily that was kind of the, the buy and flip mode that was predominant in the industry during that time. And eventually all the acreage got um, taken, you know, it was all leased up. The, the plays were figured out, I'll say, generally or, or broadly speaking. And so the buy and flip mode began to diminish, um, partly because of the, just the natural maturity um, of, the, of the business, but also because there were a lot of people who did not end up with very good returns as they were uh, investing in companies that were going, just continuing to invest to spend money to grow, especially if they were raising capital through debt or through additional equity raises and just plow, plowing that money back into the business. And then when prices dropped and I'll say the music stopped, they didn't, they weren't getting the returns that they had been anticipating. In fact, a lot of, a lot of people lost a lot of money. So investors decided, you know, we're kind of tired of that and we're going to, we're not going to be putting, you know, banks said we're not, you know, we're going to have tougher underwriting standards. We're not going to be putting as much debt in. Uh, we may not be doing as many loans as we did in the past. Equity investors had, uh, they were like, well, I'd like to start seeing some of this money come back to me sooner uh, than rather than later. So I know that you're making good decisions. And the combination of all those things resulted in companies having to live pretty much on cash flow as a source of capital. Cash flow is always a source of capital for oil and gas companies. I kind of, I kind of call it the internal capital market because it's, it's money that's coming off of the assets that they control and they can do you know, pretty much whatever they want with it. They don't have to, other than the general things they have to say to their investors, they don't really have to answer to folks as much as they do when they're trying to raise additional capital. So um, so that was kind of where things 
had evolved to. And so we weren't seeing as much debt and as much equity come into uh, into the space and companies were just living on the cash flow that they had. Um, now we're seeing, you know, increased uh, equity uh, interest and we're seeing increased um, debt uh, issuance. And we're seeing uh, what I think is probably the most interesting part of this is we're seeing a rise in some of these uh, other types of um capital sources that hadn't really been uh, either they're new or we haven't heard from them for a while. So we've got like these monetization transactions that Haynes and Boone reference, volumetric production payments, override type structures. We're also seeing these alternative capital structures, which are kind of typically like term loans. So uh, comparing a term loan to a reserve-based loan, a reserve-based loan, you don't know, as long as you're below your borrowing base in terms of your um terms of your borrowings, you don't owe any money back until the very end. Term loan typically is, you know, it has a an amortization feature. It doesn't have to be this way, but it's kind of more common, at least in what I've seen, is that it's kind of like your house. You know, your house is a 30-year mortgage. Well, it has a 30-year term and you're paying it off as you go and you get to the end of the 30 years, it's all done. Now, it's, it's possible to have loans that are like a bond where you basically pay interest on that and then you owe all the money back at the maturity date, which may be five or seven years in the future. Um, but my point is we're seeing a rise in some of these alternative structures. We've been working with um, lenders that are providing those to, to do technical diligence work and and we're seeing that to be a pretty active space. So uh, although the Haynes and Boone survey doesn't really drill down on that, to me, what I would say, what I see is um, I do see maybe improved participation from the commercial banks in reserve-based lending, and I'm seeing a lot of debt uh, issuance from um, what I call non-commercial banks. They're going to be investment banks and other funds that are putting together these debt-type instruments. Oh, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, uh, creative financing. That's kind of the you know, the, the, the core mission here, right? ENPs have to adapt, they have to evolve, and that's just one way of doing it, right? Yeah, and you know, it's all about, it's all about investor appetite. And investors, um, investors have certain risk tolerance and they have certain return expectations. And this business has its own sort of risk returns paradigm, if you will, or, or dynamic. And so the creativity comes in in uh, bankers coming up with means to to put structures together that are appropriate for the risks that the companies face and the potential for returns that they have, but also are um, meeting the needs of the investors pool right now. And that and that changes as market conditions change, uh, both within the oil and gas business and in the broader market. Right. Yeah. That's that's great. Thank you for the input there, Steve. That actually segues me pretty well into my next question here. So, um, again, hearkening back to the survey, it looks like respondents reported that the most important impediment to increasing oil and gas production is actually one that's going to take some time to reverse, and that is the lack of reinvestment in the industry over the last couple of years, right? That need to make up the ground that was lost during the downturn, a, a drying up of reinvestment. So to get your analysis and opinion on this, what kind of things can producers do or what kind of things are you seeing producers already doing to reinvest in the industry to make up that lost ground? 
Uh, I think on this question, again, it's important to note the, you know, the respondent group, right? We've got about a third of the respondents here are actual oil and gas operators. Now, their bankers know something about those operations, but I, I would have liked to have seen this question split up just like they had done the others by the type of respondent, because I'd be most interested in what the operators have to say about this. So when we think about, you know, what so they've responded, um, the, the, this group says that the most significant impediment to growing production is the fact that we haven't invested in the past. And you, know, you kind of think about that and say, well, what does that really mean? I mean, if I'm trying to grow from today, you know, what real difference does it make what I did in the past? Um, about the only thing that I can say is um, it's kind of a maybe a startup issue, right? So a lot of companies, when they, um, decide to stop drilling or are forced to stop drilling, they have folks on staff and uh, whose job it is to drill wells. And if you're not drilling wells, you may decide, you know, I just can't afford to keep these the staff around for two years until I'm ready to start drilling again. Uh, and that could be like drilling engineers, regulatory people, uh, drilling foremen, um, land people. Uh, so I could see uh, a, a certain turnaround time, if you will, if you decide, well, you just can't decide today necessarily that I'm going to go from no rigs to three rigs uh, because I may have to staff up a little bit. All right. So that could be one reason why failure to keep rigs running in the past makes it harder to, to get them going again. Uh, we always face the problem of declining base production, whether we're, even when we see production growing, the thing to keep in mind is it's just growing because we're adding new wells, not growing because the wells are producing anymore. Underneath all that is declining production. Every one of those wells, for, with the, you know, a few exceptions that probably don't make any difference in this context, they're all declining almost immediately from the time they're placed on production. So, to, to grow production, we always have to overcome, overcome that decline. Even if, even if we're, even if we're growing, to keep growing, we still have decline we have to overcome. Um, so the, the lack of reinvestment, I'm a bit, you know, I'm a bit surprised to see that being number one, but okay. Uh, number two, lack of access to capital. Now, um, I think this is an area, as we talked about a minute ago, that may be getting better for some companies, uh, partly because, we, you know, well, what's the primary source of capital for most companies is their cash flow. And if prices are going up, there's a chance, there's a good chance their cash flow is going up. Now, if you hedge 90% of your production at some lower price, you're not going to see a lot of the benefit of these price rises. So you, those operators may not really have much more cash flow to work with, at least today. But as those hedges roll off and provided that, prices stay up, then eventually that will happen. Um, but uh, what we do know that in some respects, there isn't some capital starting to come back into the uh, into the space. I don't think it's anything like what we had seen in the past, but I, I also don't think it's as bad as it was, you know, in the most dark days, say, you know, one to two years, two years ago. I do think, uh, you know, another thing that they point out, lack of competent rig crews. And I think you could, you know, they, they basically, that's kind of a labor issue, right? It's a very narrow, um, very narrow, narrow category of labor. But you could have said, you could have said labor in general, not just for rig crews, but also for frat crews and other operations personnel. 
those folks, just like when, you know, when you stop drilling, those folks are out of work and you stop fracking or you reduce fracking, those folks are out of work. And so are the guys that are running the wireline crews and the, and the MWD uh, equipment, et cetera. There's a lot of people who um, don't have anything to do when rigs get laid down. Many of those people will move on and find something else to do. And, you know, it's going to take, it's going to be difficult. Some of them will never come back to the industry. Some will have to feel like, hey, this is actually a sustainable environment that I'm willing to, to go back into. Uh, to get some of those folks back is going to, re- frankly, require more money. It's going to require higher pay to incentivize them to come and do this work from whatever it is they're doing right now. And, of course, that just contributes to higher well costs, which starts to squeeze out some of the higher revenues that we're getting from higher prices. And as a result, some folks may say, you know, by the time I look at what rig costs are doing, uh, uh, and even with higher revenues, this may not be a good opportunity for me to drill. And so, you know, not everything that might be perceived to be economic at $100 a barrel will will be once higher prices are factored in. Um, so, and we are seeing some cost pressures, I think, uh, both in terms of labor, but also in terms of steel. Uh, we're seeing delays in um, steel availability. I read an article uh, maybe a month or so ago about steel mills, and yeah, they're enjoying some pretty high prices right now, but they're also faced with some high costs, and they have a lot of reluctance to just build up uh, pipe inventory and have it sitting on the ground, you know, place millions and millions of dollars worth of uh, their capital into inventory. If the oil prices aren't sustained at these prices and the rig count drops and they're kind of left holding the bag again. So they're, they're picking pipe more when it's requested and that, uh, you know, or they're taking, you know, taking orders and then starting to make it. And that kind of turns into delays that we didn't have in the past. You know, it may take, depending on who the operator is, it may take a couple months to get the casing and tubing that are needed in order to you know, complete the wells. So, yeah, I do think that those sorts of factors are, are significant. Yeah, historical, right. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Steve. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> as if that's not enough to compound the headwinds for the industry, right, inflation, labor, materials, um, ESG is also a thing in the industry. And as we've seen and discussed on this podcast many a times, it's taken the industry by storm. However... Despite all the current focus on ESG, respondents in the survey uh, said that they see it as one of the least important impediments to increasing oil and gas production. Does that surprise you at all? Right? What was your take or your uh, opinion upon seeing that response? Well, not really. I mean, I think there's a couple things. So, you know, ESG, environmental, social, and governance, those are those are not new ideas. Companies deal with those problems all the time. I think what we're seeing right now is a greater interest in uh, transparency around all three of those. And I'll say there, there already is some level of disclosure around all those. It's not like these are completely hidden, but there's, there's greater interest in that. And so um, the question is, what sort of things are regulators going to require uh, specifically for public companies, the SEC, um, to make better disclosure. And I think, you know, there's some, there's some, um, I guess some preliminary guidance that's been issued by the SEC. I have to admit, I have not studied that. So I don't know what the impact of that could be. I, I will say those sorts of rules 
take you know, take a long time to be promulgated. There's a whole administrative process uh, around rule writing, uh, rule review, uh, comment from industry, etc. So um, it's probably a little early to say where that's going to settle out and what the impact would be. And absent that, you know, not not a whole lot has changed other than an awareness that there is greater interest in this. And some companies are starting to take a more proactive view to make greater disclosure. They're trying to get out ahead of, of where the regulators may go. And uh, yeah, it makes, you know, it makes sense. I think some investors too are, uh, are also asking more questions than they used to. Uh, we see that in the public market. So we see that, uh, you know, through some shareholder activism. And I'm sure it's occurring in the private markets where you have large funds and they're, they're big limited partners or, you know, be things like endowments, uh, pension funds, um, maybe, um, maybe family offices to some degree, probably, you know, not so much, uh, sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, that uh, are just asking more questions than they had in the past. But those questions, while they take time to answer, and there's a lot of cost involved in measuring some of these things, they're, you know, they're not really operational issues for the most part. I mean, some of it is. I don't want to say they're not all, but, you know, when you're talking about governance issues and about who's on the board and how the board works, well, that's, you know, that's not a, that's not a drilling investment decision. Right. Well, you know, one thing's for certain, at least, ESG is not going away. Uh, there is an outsized focus both within industries, right, with pressure from industry organizations uh, and to maintain a competitive edge, but then also just kind of at a, a macroeconomic level. Um, we're even seeing, uh, you know, fresh standards at a federal level pushing for ESG compliance. So again, it's probably not going to go away. Um, it's probably only going to intensify as green agendas take shape in public policy across the state, local, federal levels. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I don't know exactly what form it's going to take, uh, but I do think it's. I think it, that we're seeing a heightened level of uh, a desire for greater accountability on these topics, kind of across society, if you will. And so those those uh, requests for information and to understand what companies are doing and to hold them accountable to some standards in these ESG realms, uh, I, I think that's real. And so I don't see any reason to suspect it's going to go away. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree again. Steve, well said. So I think with that, Steve, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. So thank you again for your time and your great insights. I always appreciate getting to chat with you and pull from your years of experience to get a better pulse check on the industry and turn it into some actionable insights. Uh, so again, folks, we've been chatting with Steve Hendrickson. He's president of Ralph E. Davis, an opportune company. And Steve, uh, if folks want to learn a little bit more about Ralph E. Davis, um, I'm going to point them to opportune.com like we normally do. But if folks want to learn more about you, right, or they want to reach out, pick your brain on this topic, how can they get in touch? Well, yeah, that's the, that's the best place is go to opportune.com. We have a web page there that deals with our uh, our practice, uh, reserve engineering and reservoir engineering. There's a contact links on there. Uh, I always like to stress to people too, you know, we mentioned it a little bit, uh, but uh, we do put out a newsletter each week. Uh, that newsletter has a lot of really handy statistics in it. Um, we try to make it we try to include content that I think folks would find very useful. And uh, there is a uh, there is a page on our webpage where you can 
both sign up to receive it each week uh, in your inbox, or you can just go back through and look at uh, previous um, archive versions. They're all out there. Um, so that's you know that's the best way to get a hold of us. Absolutely. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap things up. So, Steve, thank you again. It's been a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to the next one because I'm sure we'll have some more conversations soon. Take care. Okay, my pleasure as always. Thanks. And thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard today and you want previous episodes or you want to make sure you don't miss out on future conversations, make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of E2B. E2B.